Hello and welcome to Building Insights. This episode is brought to you in association with Kingspan Insulation. I'm James Parker, editor of Architects Datafile, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Rita Singh, who's head of public affairs at Kingspan Insulation. We are discussing what sustainability means today in the built environment, how a fabric first approach works in practice, and why retrofit first should be the overriding aim. Rita also explains how a rigorous approach to supply chain and manufacturing is helping create more sustainable products for the industry and the role manufacturers will play in sustainability going forward. Good morning, Rita. How are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. It's a real pleasure. First off, it's a very simple question, but probably not a simple answer. But what do we mean by a sustainable building now? (laughs) It's a very good question and not a very simple answer, like you say. Um, I think it's worth saying that at the moment, there isn't really a single clear industry definition, Uh, but there are a range of attributes that we would typically expect of a sustainable building. But it fundamentally comes down to how well is it built? And if we then break that down, the key elements that we need to consider in terms of how well is it built is you should consider the whole life impact of the building and all of the products used in its construction. So this means not only thinking about the materials and the methods used to construct the building, but also how easy it will be to maintain and what will happen at the end of its life. Then it also needs to consider um, how well it can be adapted by the user over time. So considerations in terms of how the internal spaces could be repurposed if the need changes over that time. So it's not just one type of building for one kind of user, but how adaptable is the building over time. It should also encourage the users to use the resources responsibly and support their own health and well-being. So for this, you know, where you have provisions such as bike storage, consider all the different waste streams, how you limit energy use, uh, also looking at ensuring there's healthy environment within the building, looking to improve air quality, access to natural light, supporting biodiversity, green spaces, everything that, you know, you look at a building and you're going, okay, yeah, this looks like a healthy built environment to us. And then finally, and last but definitely not the least, is how you use your energy and carbon responsibly. For this, you need to have like careful consideration to how you can limit the initial energy demand of the building and ensure it is really meeting its net zero carbon or is at least net zero carbon ready. Okay, so why is a fabric-first approach important for delivering sustainable buildings? Again, another great question. Um, and it really does come back to you know the fundamentals of how well is the building built so that it can be used properly. Um, the fabric-first approach, I mean, it really means what you can do to limit energy demand. So you can initially you know, make sure that the building is built through as much of the passive means. So what does that mean? It really means, you know, how well is the building insulated? So the walls, the roofs, the floors, the building services, what are the types of windows and doors that we fit? How airtight is the building? And if you achieve a good level of fabric performance, you can then effectively limit the heating energy demand across the building's lifespan, which then means it's simpler to meet the remaining demand through low carbon technology. So whether it's solar power, battery and various other means that you can then add on 
where passive isn't able to meet the, the, the full demand of the energy needs. And for this reason, this sort of approach is fundamental to most of the leading sustainability standards like LEED and passive house standards. And it also forms the uh, basis of the building regulation that govern you know, the energy performance and carbon, like we have Part L in uh, England and Wales and Section 6 in Scotland. And very soon, we're going to have our future home standard and a future building standard from 2025. So yes, fabric first is fundamental to making sure the building that you have is looking to limit your energy need, and then you then have anything else on top. In a way, going back to the first question briefly, that it can be a bit daunting, the, the, you know, the breadth of what we're talking about with sustainability, but looking at fabric first gives you a way in and a sort of really kind of tangible way to start to make those those improvements doesn't it and uh, as you say the regulations are increasingly tightening to help that happen absolutely as much as you can do during the build then there is less to then retrofit and improve later on so if you're able to have a fundamentally net zero carbon ready building to start off with then there is less to do as the building is the, then used over time. So you're really trying to you know, limit the amount of any additional work that you have to do. If you can do as much of it as possible right at the beginning when it's still being built. So why should, we hear a lot about retrofit, but why should we be looking to retrofit first as well as fabric first and what, uh, in terms of sustainability goals? And what, what are the key considerations? Well, retrofit, I mean, that's a, a fundamental thing that we need to do because, yes, our population is growing. We'll always be in demand of new homes. But the homes that we have at the moment, and obviously everyone, I'm sure all of your listeners will be aware that at least 80% of the homes that we have today will definitely be around by 2050, which is not a long time to go. So retrofit is going to be fundamental. At the end of the day, all of our buildings are material banks. So we need to make sure that we get as much as we can out of that material bank and use the resources responsibly. And it does come back to the first principles of how well is it built. If you look at, say, the European Commission report, construction demolition waste accounts for more than a third of all waste generated in Europe. And in UK, I believe that waste from construction industry, including demolition, accounts for more than half of our total waste. So this is a substantial amount of materials that we're talking about. So we need to carefully consider where buildings can be refurbished or retrofitted to extend their usable life rather than simply demolishing them. We know that many of them, the use of their energy is quite inefficient. So we need to look at ways of improving them. All of these buildings exist. We don't need to start again. We just need to improve what we can. And the solutions are there. It's not like we are still waiting for new innovation, new R&D to take place. All of the solutions exist. It's a case of just having the priorities of really starting and the incentives to do so. So whether it's a private rental sector, owner, occupier, social housing, you know, we just need to make sure that we have the right incentives and right mechanisms in place because the solutions fully exist. And, and we understand that there are a number of challenges because there are a whole variety of different types of retrofits that need, that are needed. So there's a growing number of what we like to call problem-solving insulation solutions to address these without having to make any compromise on the space. So we have things like um, vacuum insulated panels, which are the ultra-thin, so VIPs. Uh, they can be used for challenging applications like solid floors, have a layer of insulation, but it does not reduce the floor-to-ceiling height substantially because they are so thin. Products like this help to simplify and make clients more comfortable with the actual realities of a retrofit on an existing house. Exactly. 
yes. And there are different solutions for different needs. And I mean, obviously, that's why it's better to consider the building right at the, you know, right at the beginning to make sure that you have a structurally sound and thermally efficient building, which is that passive house, you know, fabric first approach for where retrofit is needed. Yes. And this is where some of the issues, you know, where the hard to treat homes, whether they're solid walls um, or in difficult conditions or in difficult places particularly in rural areas or off-grid homes, where you either have to find some way of external wall insulation, where if they're in a grade two listed area, that makes it very difficult, which means that you then have to go inside and the thickness of the insulation may mean that you're compromising on space. So this is where, you know, really thin insulation tends to work. So our A2 is a microporous silica, which will provide a slimmer alternative for applications where uh, you have a more demanding fire performance criteria. So anything that's, you know, 18 metres and above or, yeah, or 11 metres and above in Scotland. We need to make sure that we're able to provide a, a full suite of insulation types depending on what the need is. And the need is very, very. And so what goes into creating a more sustainable construction product? We're talking manufacturing and uh, that accreditation of those processes, aren't we? That's a very big question because we have invested millions and we have a very active R&D specialism going on across all of our businesses um, to make sure that we can answer this question you know, substantially and, and move towards an area where all of our products are seen as being sustainable. That's a, that's a huge ambition, isn't it? It's a massive ambition, but yes, we're very much placing ourselves there. We've Committed to, you know, we have these planet passionate um, targets that we've set ourselves. And the idea is that in everything that we do, we analyze it, you know, critically to see that everything that we're doing is helping us meet those planet passionate targets. And, you know, in terms of, you know, the question of how do we make a sustainable construction product, you know, fundamentally, you need to look at what goes into it, uh, how do we make it. Um, what happens at the end of its life. So in terms of what goes into it, we need to look at our supply chain. We need to make sure that we uh, are sourcing our raw materials responsibly. Uh, for that, we have uh, material audits. We encourage our suppliers to commit to rigorous standards like the ISO 14001. We have a commitment um, where we're looking to reduce the energy intensity of our raw materials by 50%. So we're working very closely with our suppliers to see where can we go out, you know, where are the areas where we can improve in terms of sourcing materials. We're also looking at the composition of our products. So what exactly are they made of? We're, we're you know, we're kind of experimenting with a whole range of things. So whether it's bio-based, recycled content, all of those, you know, where can we increase them? Uh, where can we look at, uh, you know, having recycled content? within our products and the raw materials. So for example, as a global company, last year, 2022, we recycled 800, or close to a billion, 803 million PET bottles into our processes. We turned those PET bottles into a raw material, which was then added into one of our insulation materials. So our aim is to get to a billion by 2025, and I think we're very close to reaching it. So it's, it's the supply chain, it's the composition, it's the performance. So at the end of the day, we want to make sure that given all of that, we're still looking to improve the performance of the insulation material by a factor. So for that, we're looking at, you know, how do we achieve a desired level of thermal performance, but with slimmer thickness of the insulation? 
The added benefit of that is then you significantly reduce the quantities of raw materials needed per build. Because if you're using thinner layers, then by its very nature, you're having you know, less square meterage. We also look at our production processes to find ways of reducing waste. So we don't have as much production waste coming through every time we manufacture our products. So we have things like monitoring all of our lines in real time so we can check performance against clear KPIs. And we're also investing in new production equipment. So our latest lines uh, in UK have technology to flush back leftover materials before we start the next production. And then when we take our production on, on site, we're looking at take back schemes. So bringing back any offcuts from uh, sites using the lorries that have gone in to deliver those new loads, mechanically recycled, turned into another product or chemically recycled, we're considering all options. The amount of information you need to provide on your your lines and your your uh, supply chains is, has gone up beyond all recognition, I, I imagine. For sure, and rightly so, because you know we need to be building responsibly, and we need to start by knowing that every material that goes onto site is being used responsibly. So I think it's it's right that you know we have as much reporting and monitoring going on and it's also good for traceability because when it comes to the end of its life we need to know exactly what products went into it the audit trail kind of thing exactly that and, you know building passports are a way to go and i think we need to encourage more of that where partel and others are starting to encourage people to do more site photos as you're building them again logging all of that into something like a building passport will be critical so that everyone at any point are owning that building will have sight of everything that's gone into it yeah, the culture is changing dramatically with the golden thread. Yeah, and it needs to. Probably a bit of a shock for a lot of traditionally minded firms. Yeah, well, I'd like to hope not. I'd like to hope that everyone is kind of gearing up to this kind of change um, because it's, it, is, it is really needed. The, the level of change that's needed in terms of building sustainably, being safe, being compliant, you know, all of that is going to be critical and technology is here to help. We have all of the solutions. We just need to make sure that all of these things go hand in hand in terms of the specification, the materials that exist, the materials that we're innovating on, that they have awareness of technology to then monitor and audit and report on and follow through all the way from the beginning of, you know, when a building is first built or even from design specification to it building, to its use, to then end of life. This whole thing around design for disassembly. So if it does need to be, disassembled can parts be taken out so this is where we do need to work across the supply chain to be able to design so it could be specified correctly and then installed and used correctly so when we're building buildings we need to make sure that it has a long life and it can be maintained for a much longer period but where we think that they has more than one use they need to be adaptable so disassembly will be critical especially for commercial spaces covid has shown us that you know how spaces are being used or not used um, and then making sure that we can have more adaptable buildings is going to be critical. Just lastly, in a broader sense, what do you see the, the role of construction manufacturers being in, in boosting sustainability going forward? Oh, critical. I mean, like I said, you know, every building is a material bank. And, you know, the, the figures of how much we produce that end up in construction or demolition waste and then end up in landfill the industry is responsible. I'm going to throw some facts at you here. <laughs> industry is responsible for 36% of the world's energy consumption, 40% of CO2 emissions. 
So, you know, building sustainably, the products that go into those buildings are going to be critical to make sure that we are aligned to the one and a half degree that we need to meet to make sure that we are on track to limit as much of the damage of climate change that we're currently experiencing. So how we build, what we build with, how long they last, you know, that's all critical. And we have a core part to play in this. And as a as an industry, as a sector, as a manufacturing sector, you know, we need to consider us as a company, as an organization in terms of our holistic impact of the organization alongside the whole life impact of the products we manufacture. And we need to do that by more than just making commitments. We need to make sure that any, because, you know, any company can set goals far off into the future, but actually achieving them with a clear process, hard work, a lot of hard work and buy-in from staff is going to be critical. Yeah. Some of it's about change of approach, isn't it? Oh, completely. Yes. So we, we've kind of committed, we have signed up to the science-based target initiative aligned to one and, a half, one and a half degrees with very clear targets of what we need to achieve by the end of this decade with clear interim targets by 2025, 2030 and every year. So we have a team of committed advocates globally who meet every quarter to say, okay, where are we are on this target? And fundamentally, our, our Planet Passionate program is all about tackling the three global challenges, climate change, circularity, protecting the natural world. So all of our targets uh, fit within the sort of four pillars of energy, carbon, circularity, and water. And we're trying to see at everything that we do, what can we do to limit our impact? So as an example, our targets include things like becoming a zero waste landfill company and operating as a net zero carbon manufacturing company by the end of this decade. Does that incorporate offsetting? So we have taken a very strong approach to offset basically our thing is we want to reduce as much as we can through our own processes so it's you know direct renewables having our own renewable sites um, solar panels and everything any any of our uh, manufacturing buildings that we have we're also looking at um, kind of creating energy on site and so not just solar panels but looking at other means as well so we have um, uh, biogas um, anaerobic digestion on site so because we're sort of in the uh, middle of countrysides and things so wherever feasible we're looking at those those options so everything that we can do to move towards more greener energy um, directly so we've introduced things like internal carbon price uh, the idea behind that is that quarterly we look at how much emissions come from our manufacturing and so what would be the equivalent carbon price for that so we've set ourselves a 70 euro per ton carbon price and the idea is that you have to keep reducing it and what are the things that you need to do which really helps with the business case because if you're saying that you know i need to a, a new energy production facility that's going to cost several million if you then look at the carbon price in terms of you know this is how much i'm paying now because this is how much our manufacturing base is emitting whereas the cost can then be more feasible because you're saying actually over time by having this production facility of our own pro providing green energy means that we're paying less in terms of our internal carbon price so it works out a better investment because we're talking about big investments to make all this happen aren't we it can't just streamline without pain as it were exactly yes and we you know we to really take this seriously and to really be committed to you know not just having these things of we want to be net zero carbon manufacturing but then end up offsetting we want to make sure that we're not doing that we're reducing as much as possible becoming more efficient looking at variety of ways 
of really, you know, which is where our raw material intensity, you know, targets come in so that every time we manufacture a certain amount of products, we have reduced the intensity of that product substantially. So, and all of those are in our hands. At the end of the decade, we're going to see, are there any residual emissions that we, no matter how hard we try, we're not able to. That's, if we need to, then we will consider offsets. But at the moment, we're trying to, yeah, not even consider it at all. Because you're looking at 2030, which is very daunting, isn't it? It is. It's not long to go. Yeah. We have small staff teams of advocates who are going around looking at, you know, our manufacturing sites, our offices to say, well, what more can we do to start to improve? We're also looking at community projects. So what can we do to improve the impact that we have around our own communities as well? So we're trying to do as much as we can at every level. So it's not just a top-down approach. And to get that buy-in, you need staff to be able to control, you know, their own impact as well as the impact of the communities and where we live, you know. The communities where we operate are where we live. So it's in our own interest to look to improve them. Without being too dramatic about it, you know, humanity rests on us getting this right. We don't underestimate the scale of this challenge at all. Uh, you know, and just being a core part of the built environment, we have to take our responsibility seriously. Looking at the innovation and being in a position where we can do a lot of R&D, look at every element of what we produce, what we manufacture, where it's applied, how it's applied, the competency side of things, so everything needs to be completely looked through in detail to say, okay, what can we do to really improve on this and make sure it adds up to that alignment of one and a half degrees. Well, it's, a, it's more than a labor of love and I wish you all the best in uh, staying fully enthused as you are. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us on Building Insights. Thank you. My pleasure.